The world has changed an awful lot in the past decade. So anyone who's led a successful agency through these changes must be worth their weight in gold. Now, don't tell anyone, but Marianne Ames is about to let you in on the secrets she's learned from running an agency since 2010 and why she's now passionate about making sure CEOs know these secrets too. Hi, I'm Sarah Spence. I grew a content agency from just me to 20 people inside two years. So you'd think I'd have my shit together. And even though I try to come at everything with a rebellious curiosity, I've been so focused on growing this thing that I'm a bit behind in the trends. Join me on this journey to find out what's actually happening in the world of marketing. Welcome to The Content Rebels. There's been a lot of experts on this podcast talking about how a single strategy never really works in isolation. The best results seem to always be achieved by using multiple marketing tools and blending them together to create a targeted approach. So let's talk to someone who has had their finger on the pulse of these many different tools for a long time now. Mary Ann Ames has spent more than 20 years at the forefront of the marketing world. I love to joke about being the elder millennial of digital marketing. I almost have like the home phone that I could show you and, and dial out on. It was way back in 2010 when Marianne launched her own digital agency, Wise Up Marketing. She also coaches CEOs and directors to take back control of their digital marketing decisions. Thank you so much, Sarah. That is the loveliest introduction. <gasps> it's hard to know where to start when you talk to someone who knows so much about digital. So I started at the beginning and asked Marianne what it was like to lead an agency all the way back then. Within my industry, there has obviously been so much change and, and that is digital marketing. You know, I, I joke that I started when cat memes were everything and writing, you know, your life story in reply on a Facebook comment was, was normal. You know, we had amazingly high engagement. We didn't pay a cent for anything and, it, you know, it was all wins and my gosh, how it's changed over 13 years. So in the backdrop of an ever-evolving industry, I guess, you know, my role and, and my purpose has really evolved as well. So like many people, you know, I started the agency on my own, I guess, freelancing under that banner. I, you know, built it up on my own. And, and as I brought on team and, and grew team, I guess I was playing that game of being everything to everyone. So, you know, from clients to staff to, to you know, anyone who needed me, I, I was all things. And it was probably about three or four years ago that I could kind of see that wasn't sustainable for me anymore. And, and I guess you start to almost lose your love for it because you're so stuck in the, in the trenches of it. Um, and there's been a big shift now and, and, and I guess how, how leading that agency looks for me now. I did a lot of work on myself and, and, you know, working with a, an amazing coach that you and I have in common. And, you know, now my, my role is really about vision and it's about leadership and culture and, you know, making sure that I have the, the right structure and, and processes and I guess, objectives in place for my team and so that we can deliver for our clients to the values of the brand and, and really make sure that everybody in the team aligns with those brands values and really is contributing to that broader vision. So it, it's different. And that means a lot less, 
you know, to-do list ticking off, which I absolutely adore. Uh, <laughs> a massive challenge for me to walk away from. And and a lot more bigger picture, big thinking, uh, you know, sink your teeth in sort of stuff. So it's, yeah, it's been a really big evolution. Was that the dream when you first started? Did you want to grow to where you are now and beyond? It's so funny because it 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 feels terrible to say it in the environment where people slog it out hard to build a business. And maybe it's because it was 13 years ago and and the kind of culture around, you know, start a side hustle, build a business, it wasn't around. So I didn't kind of begin the business with that pressure that there seems to be today. So the big dream when I started out was just about helping people. And I know that that sounds so cliche, but it really was. I, I, you know, I had a corporate role. I was, I was on a great trajectory in my, in my corporate gig. I probably, you know, would have been a general manager within the next six to 12 months of going back after maternity leave had I stayed, but it didn't fulfill me. And when I was on maternity leave, helping people, the tiniest businesses with their marketing brought me so much joy. And I think my big dream when I started was firstly, how can I, help more people in this tangible way where, you know, even if they're just giving me $100, I can make a small impact and they are so much better off for it. And then the the other part of that dream became the team. I for so long talked about when I go back to work, you know, I'm doing this, but when I go back to work, I'm doing that, but when I go back to work. And then I remember saying to my husband one day, I actually think the only thing I want is the team. But the only reason I want to go back to work is for the people. And if I could have the people around me, then, you know, this could be something. And so I think my big dream has always been around people. So, you know, between growing and nurturing a team and, you know, working with clients that I really want to help and want to see succeed, that's kind of, that's it for me. Marianne is onto something there. 13 years ago, there really wasn't the pressure to make a million bucks with your side hustle while you sleep. But somewhere along the way, some clever person in marketing probably came up with a campaign and it just took off. And it became kind of the ultimate dream. Well, that is until a global pandemic stopped everyone's big plans in their tracks. I'm pretty sure I'm not the only one who noticed a shift in business values and values in general post 2020. And so I'm wondering what Marianne thinks about the impact COVID has had on this hustle mindset. People, you know, seeked and went back to seeking stability. I, I, I think leading into that COVID time, it was a, a lot bigger. Uh, and and I think, you know, all and, and it's almost all the debunking of the fads as well, like the four-hour work week, the make money while you sleep with a course, you know, launch a course and you'll never have to work again, you know, and then we would build courses for people and they'd be like, oh, the student needs this, the student needs that. It's like, yeah, like you sold a course. You didn't sell, you know, a packet of chips and they went off to eat it. You sold a relationship. You sold an ongoing relationship. And I think a lot of that stuff, those dreams that were sold all kind of got debunked and people came back to actually, you know, if I'm going to do something, I'm going to put the hard slog in, I need to be powered and driven by something, not just, you know, dollars in the bank. Absolutely. And yeah, COVID did absolutely instigate Mm. that reassessment for so, so many people. Yeah. It was was an interesting time. Um, (laughs) When, when you started out, were there many female peers doing the same kind of thing or were you the only woman yeah. around in your space? 
I feel like no, not really. It was quite lonely. My friends were all in corporate. Definitely none of my friends were, you know, starting businesses. Um, you know, all my friends I went to uni with were, were climbing the corporate ladder. I was juggling babies and and building a business at the same time. I think I, in that stage, at the very beginning, I didn't have the capacity to get out as much. And when I did kind of network with other women in business, it tended to be that they you know, were a product-based business or, you know, a yoga a yoga school or, a you know, they didn't tend to be in that consulting space as much. Um, and definitely, you know, I feel like Melbourne, and, and I think it's still true, you know, Melbourne seems to have a more active, integrated business community than Sydney. Sydney is such a big place and I feel like it, you know, I've heard it for over a decade. It's hard to get people out to events in Sydney. Uh, and I think part of it is because of our geographic spread. Um, and I definitely, you know, yeah, did went to different events, joined different networking groups and things, but I didn't often come across digital marketing then, you know, fast forward, say, oh gosh, maybe, you know, 2017. And that seemed to be the era of, I've managed an Instagram account really well. I'm now think I could do this for other people. I'm now a social media manager and and that pathway in, which is, you know, really valid as well. But that kind of blew up around that 2017, 2018. Whereas I feel like before that, it was like big inaccessible agencies, um, not necessarily as many kind of small businesses offering that organic mm. management, paid management services. Yeah, I'd, I'd second that too in my corporate career before I had mm. my first. So that was, you know, pre-2014. I was, uh, with anything marketing-wise that we were doing, it was all the, the big incumbent agencies. It would, yeah. would just never have been on our radar to even consider a relationship with a specialist. And I love that that, is, that, that has changed and we get the opportunity yeah. to work with bigger clients um, and, and even, you know, medium-sized clients who aren't then looking to those big agencies for their digital marketing, but they are willing to talk to um, and engage with a specialist. I think they really see the value in that, which is Absolutely. nice. And yeah, and I kind of think it's the evolution of digital marketing as well, right? Because I, I often go on that like digital marketing is just marketing. It's not its own entity, like it's marketing and the channels have changed, you know, to what they were before. We had marketing before and we used TV and radio. We have marketing now and we can use those things, but we can also use content or social media or, you know, web or SEO. And I think probably, you know, those bigger businesses and those marketing individuals within them have learned more to go, oh, actually, what is the specific thing I need rather than what is the blanket of, you know, and again, it's kind of that whole snake oil era. I think we've talked about this before, Sarah, you know, where people were selling websites for 50 grand that were the world's most basic website because nobody knew. And, and I feel like digital marketing has kind of gone through that as well, like the mysticism and the, you know, um, magic tricks. And now people are like, oh, actually, I understand it's a series of tools. Which tool do I want? Who's the best person to deliver that tool with me? Yeah, absolutely. That's so interesting. You're right. The whole kind of business <laughs> growth 
trajectory yeah. and and the evolution of digital marketing and the same. Uh, well, let's talk about marketing itself. You're an expert in many, many different dimensions <laughs> of marketing, including email, nurture, direct, paid, uh, website development, um, all of those <laughs> things. What do you see as the most important aspect of marketing these days? It's super boring, but strategy and foundations. <laughs> we as love I the boring stuff. I know. And as we touched on, you know, you've got your tools and tactics and they're great and that you need them at a certain spot, but without the, who are you talking to? What is the objective? What is the purpose? You know, what, why are you even marketing? And, and, and I think, you know, start, I say it time and time again, and I know you're exactly the same, you know, who is the target market? Start there. Before you come to me saying, we want to grow our TikTok, we want to grow our Instagram. It's like, well, who are you talking to? Because if I don't know who you're trying to talk to, then I don't know if that's the right thing for you or just some friend at a barbecue has told you that they did it and they've made, you know, $10,000. Now you want to jump on it too. So, you know, starting always with, with the who, the why, getting your objectives in place and having that 360 degree focus. Um, it's a it's a spider web, you know, digital marketing or the digital stratosphere and all those different things you spoke of, like email, like direct, paid, nurture, web, they have a relationship with each other. It, it's almost like no one tool in isolation is going to get you there. It's the whole architecture of how you're going to use them together to build that architecture, you need to know your strategy. Yeah, it's so true. But it's it's interesting though, like even for, for you know, whether you're a small business, medium-sized business or a larger brand, I think it's it's either in a large brand, it's difficult to say, okay, we need just one unified strategy. But then likewise for a small business or a medium business, it's often hard to say, okay, we can put forward the investment for a single large overall strategy. How do you deal with that kind of thing with your clients? Because you do tend to work with smaller businesses. When you do the strategy and you work out who they're talking to, what channels matter to those that audience, do you then just put all your eggs into that one channel basket or do you still do that broader strategy for them? Yeah, look, I think when a business comes to us and either they're new and they're looking to launch or they're what I would call stuck, so they're not getting the results that they want or they, you know, they're, they're at that crossroads where they're like, it's not working and I don't know why, I do um, I do try to, you know, encourage them down to the strategy road, Let you know, let's do a, a strategy and we do that. We actually do two hours of workshopping with them directly and through that we talk about the ideal client, we talk about objectives. We talk about, you know, brand purpose, brand messaging. And then from there, we go away and build out, you know, the tactics and the tools. And to, you know, to your point, no, it's never just one thing. You know, there's never a client where we say just do Facebook or just do Instagram. It's always a multi, you know, tiered strategy because consumers are, you know, in different places. We also generally work to two ideal client profiles for most businesses. So, you know, we might be going, okay, well, ideal client profile one, we're going to find them on LinkedIn, but ideal client profile two, they're really, you know, maybe we're going to get them on Instagram. So this is what we'll do for the LinkedIn. This is what we'll do for Instagram. Um, you know, you then need to build a website that can talk to multiple target markets. You, you know, the SEO strategy, you, you might need to balance it more towards one or the other, depending on who the, you know, bigger opportunity is. But, Definitely. There's, there's always multi-tier and 
with small business especially I'm always very big on like you can't do everything at once you know it's it, like it's it's all a marathon you've got to be in it for the long run so I I never encourage even if there's three channels that seem great for them I always sort of go let's get these two right first then we'll move on to the third because I think that overwhelm comes from when we try to do everything and we try to do everything at once and then you know if especially if they're going to DIY some they probably can't afford to outsource at all and they're going to be really good for a couple of months and then they're going to go dead in the water so you know I'm very very big on that slow and steady kind of growth. It's a good time to press pause here because this is something that trips up so many people. Slow and steady does always win. But as a small business myself, it's so hard to know where to focus and where to put that time and energy so that we land in that sweet spot where sustainable growth can really be achieved. It is such a balancing act. And I think this comes back to being purposeful and intentional with how you approach your marketing, but also being realistic about what is achievable for any given brand or business at that moment. Start where you're at and build on it. This throwing everything at the marketing wall and hoping something sticks, you might say it's a tactic, but probably not a very good one. Even though sometimes I must admit, That's kind of what I do myself. But I was so interested to hear from someone like Marianne, who has seen so much change, about the marketing moves that brands still insist on taking, even though they really aren't working anymore. Number one, you know, digital marketing sin is is jumping straight into the doing. So not not having a strategy, Uh, you know, and, and you normally see that in that kind of burst of activity and then fading away. You know, those businesses where you're kind of like, they're everywhere and then they're nowhere is because they kind of didn't know what they were doing or why. And they, you know, they went at it. Um, And and I guess wrapped up in that jumping the straight to the doing is and expecting immediate results. You know, there's no, there's pretty much no immediate strategy when it comes to marketing. You know, let's even throw away the word digital marketing. When it comes to marketing, you need to build a relationship. You need to, it's so funny because the traditional marketing, uh, you know, frameworks, they still hold. You need to build awareness. You need to turn awareness to consideration, consideration to trial, trial to purchase, purchase to loyalty. Like we we are still the people we, you know, we've always been and you need to go through that process. And I think, you know, those that jump straight into the doing, like I want an ads campaign, I want it to go up, you know, it needs to go up by this week. And and then, you know, three weeks later, they're the one knocking on your door saying, I've had no uplift, I've had no result, I've had no, sort of like, well, first of all, we need three months when it comes to even, you know, a good organic, a good organic and paid. And, and I'm certain it's the same for you in content. We need time. We need time for those strategies we've put in place to play out we need time to learn to test to measure to adapt and all those things um so that you know wanting immediate effect wanting immediate results I think that that's one of those things that you just can't you know you shouldn't you can't you have to be realistic um and then the second shouldn't is you know shiny objects and jumping on trends and then that comes from no strategy or or it comes from that feeling of desperation. So either monitoring competitors and 
perceiving, you know, Instagram versus reality, perceiving that they're doing so much better than you. So trying to jump on all the shiny objects and trends that they're doing. Or it's, you know, just listening to too many things, following too many accounts, listening to too many diverse podcasts, and just, you know, those people that are, they're always trying something different. And and, and I think, again, coming back to your strategy, when it comes to what brands are doing that I think they should be and they they should continue to is, is humanizing their content and and driving the personal aspect of their business. Now, I think it's a Maybe it maxes out at that medium-sized business as as a strategy, but I think it's almost the USP of small and medium businesses, that ability to to go, you know, this is my story. This is these are the people in this business. This is the human side of this business. Because again, even definitely post-COVID, people are connecting more with people. They always have. It's a tale as old as time. Like we had a dentist client. Oh, it must have been in like 2014. And, you know, we'd done all this dentist content on Facebook, which you can imagine was thrilling. And then they had this Christmas party at the guy's house and they did a post themselves at the Christmas party. And the thing that killed me the most is they all had their shoes off, which killed me. Those posts, that one post went better than the whole year of posts. Because it's people. People want to see people. And there was the, you know, worst images you can imagine. No, no styling, food on the tablecloth, you, you name it. But it went so well. And I think, you know, that has continued for over a decade that if you post about people, if you tell the story of the people in your business, your purpose, your why, all those things, that will continue to be your biggest competitive advantage. Yeah, absolutely. And it's something that I, you know, one of the shouldn'ts I think that we see a lot is, is particularly with B2B brands, though those small to medium-sized B2B mm-hmm. brands, so often the founders are like, no, no, I don't want to be the face of it. <sighs> no, I don't, you know, I want the brand to stand for itself. And it's like, I, I get that. I love that for you. I'm glad that that's your vision. Yeah. But like <laughs> you need you need to be part of the story at this point. Yes, because correct. If you, if you aren't, it's going to take you probably five times as long to grow to where you want to get to. If you put yep. yourself at the center of the story, then you will get there faster and then you can transition out of that. Exactly right. And it's what people will buy into, you know, the reasons why you started, what you're trying to achieve, you know, what you put into the product and why it's different to someone else. It all comes from you, the person. And yeah, I, I think if you can't, sometimes people can't physically be the face because maybe it is their side hustle or, you know, different factors are at play, but then you almost need to identify someone in the business that can be because that the, the power of it is just undeniable. For a while when I, it was just me, and I know many others in the freelancing community have this story as well, but I had, um, I had someone in accounts payable uh, who, <laughs> it was literally only me, but there was another email address and, you know, her Absolutely. name, I think her name was, what did I call her? I think I called her Samantha or so it was like quite a long, <laughs> you know, semi-prestigious kind of name. And it was like, so she would email to follow up on invoices and everything. It was all me, but yeah. I was like, no, I need this. I need to make up this person so that it's not me. Yeah, one hundred percent. Yeah, one hundred percent. I mean, I've always, from day one, you know, I didn't, I didn't market under my name as the banner. I always said we. Everything said we. I mean, it was just me, guys. Yeah. <laughs> Everything said we from day dot. 
I know. You know, it, I, yeah. I think we all, you know, there, there's that strategy. And again, comes back to what you think your business is going to be. But I, I can hand on heart say I waited too long to put myself in my business and hid behind my business for, you know, far too long. And, and the benefits of stepping out of that are huge. Absolutely. I, I second that. I think, you know, that comes back to another tale as old as time of, you know, particularly for women, just the imposter syndrome and feeling exposed and like, you're going to be caught out for not knowing anything. I think that was when I realized that actually part of my superpower was that I didn't know everything, but I was so like determinately, if that's even a word, curious that I would find out if I didn't know and actually just started to have the confidence to say to clients, yeah, look, I don't know that. Or no, I'm not across that trend. But you know what? I'll I'll check it out. And if it if it aligns, then cool, we can give it a try. Yeah. What's the biggest change that you have seen in the industry over the years, do you think? Yeah, it, it's it's interesting. I think um you know, the monetization of, of all social media channels was huge and, you know, continues to be huge and, and I think necessary when you think of, um, you know, the amount of content that is published every day without a way to, you know, be a priority in that content or, or to, to guarantee that you can get a bit more front of the queue, I, I think is important. And it's also important to, the longevity of the channels. So to expect that these channels could operate for free for their entirety, you know, they wouldn't develop, they wouldn't grow, they wouldn't give us uh, new features to use. And, you know, hand over heart, the the cost efficiency of social and Google ads over the, the traditional marketing advertising tools we used to use that, you know, small business could never have thrived the way it's thriving now. So I, I've always been a big advocate of, you know, yeah, like what, what do you mean the ads are unfair? Of course they needed to make money. And I I also believe that Facebook and Google and, you know, all the other paid channels, they want you to succeed because if you don't succeed, you won't invest. So a lot of people kind of have that. They just take my money, like clients say to us all the time. They're just taking our money. Like who knows what we actually got? Well, actually. If they did that to everyone, everyone would stop advertising and they would lose their revenue. So they're not going to do that. They want you to make the most money so you spend on their platform only. I think, you know, that's been a massive shift, obviously, is is learning that monetization has to play a role. I think another big shift is what we've just been talking about, the 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 realization around humanization and and face of the brand kind of strategy, because I do think. You know, it wasn't just us that were kind of late to late to market on that. I do think that's been like in the last five years a much bigger, uh, you know, trend and shift. And part of that, definitely with the launch of TikTok, I think for the first time we've seen the fall away of the perfect aesthetic. And I think that's lovely. You know, people still ask me, is the Instagram grid, you know, is it still important to have an aesthetic grid? I don't actually believe it is anymore. I feel like things have really shifted there, whereas you know, two years ago, if my team sent me a, a schedule to review and the grid didn't have a pattern, I'd be like, what are you doing? This, this grid is revolting. Now I don't even view the grid. I don't even go to the grid. I look at each piece of content individually. I rarely look at the grid. And I think that's a massive shift that's happened. Does anyone look at the grid anymore? Yeah. Except for, except for business owners looking at their own grid and yes. kind of <laughs> figure out what their brand identity is. <laughs> 
100%. And I don't, yeah, I don't think that, you know, that perfect mix of Canva graphics and and styled imagery, flat, even flat lay, like people want to see product in play now as opposed to just an amazing flat lay. Um, I think that that hands-on, real, down-to-earth, and, you know, you look at TikTok, down and dirty, you know, no makeup, hair in a bun, like, you know, and the, the green- super real. The green screen ones, I just, yeah. I mean, they're hilarious because they are, they are so far from, from imperfect. perfection. Yes, they're yeah. so imperfect. Yeah. yeah. They're just, but they're so engaging. Correct. And it's, yeah. And Correct. then, you know, also brands, I'm sure would much rather, um, I mean, I definitely know, much rather have that UGC, that user generated mm. content. Uh, yeah in my grid or being shared, you know, we've like our team love to share what they're, what they've written. And there's been this discussion recently around, oh, are we able to, you know, share a bit about how we found the writing process for this particular article or whatever, you know, we don't want to annoy the clients. And I'm like, yeah, we have permission from all our clients to share our work, but regardless, like that is so much more valuable to us and to the client. Yeah, correct. You're talking about how engaging you felt this was or how interesting this topic was or how proud you feel about, mm. you know, trying to break down social norms around period care, for instance, the work, yeah. the work we do with Modi Body. So, like, yeah, go for it, guys. You know, gone Absolutely. are the days of having to have that really perfect, perfect view. You're right. And I love it. Yeah. Yeah, same. Here for it. Because mm-hmm. I certainly... I am very far from perfect myself, so (laughs) (laughs) takes the pressure off. Question about rebelliousness. Do you see (laughs) your agency as rebellious? I feel like we're rebellious in the most, uh, you know, walk around the block three times backwards type of way. I think our rebelliousness comes from being about steady, slow growth. So I am by nature a risk-averse person. I I love data and I love to combine data with intuition. And through that, I have favoured slow and steady growth over bells and whistles. And, you know, I, I know my business could be bigger. I know our social followings could be much bigger. You know, we've been around for 13 years. Our social followings don't reflect that because I've never been about the vanity metrics. I've always been about I'm happy to have as many followers who would one day do business with us then have, you know, 200,000 followers that have no desire to work with us ever. So I think that's my point of rebellion is that it's always been about, yeah, a genuine, you know, genuinely helping. Uh, I think something that I learned from you instead of, you know, people over profit, people with profit is a lovely correction, but, you know, make balancing those two things and not, you know, I'm, I'm no King Kong. I'm no Sabri Subri. I'm not looking to, you know, rabbit on about the 20 million I made in one year of four clients. I, you know, I just want to gen, you know, have a genuine impact for the businesses I work with. And I think that kind of makes me rebelling against the trend of, you know, bro agency culture. Don't even get me started on bro agency culture. That is a whole other podcast. (gasps) Approaching your work with intention and purpose creates connection with people and tremendous satisfaction. It is definitely one of my driving forces. And I reckon that that's pretty rebellious these days. 
But here's the thing. Not every business owner knows the secret to great marketing. If we're honest, not every marketer even knows it. And so I was interested to find out that Marianne doesn't just offer marketing to brands and businesses, she also teaches it to CEOs and business owners. I wanted to know how beneficial it is for an owner of any business to know what's really happening in their marketing department and actually be able to lead that. We know when it comes to our our numbers, our P&L, our cash flow, all those sorts of things. You know, we might not feel confident in them necessarily, but we know they're really important and we know they're an area we need to focus on and we need to visit and we need to look at and we need to assess performance in. And then with our marketing, we kind of shy away from it. With oh, you know, nobody looks at the end. We we send out monthly reports. We're lucky if 50% of clients read it. We're lucky if 20% of clients reply that they've read it. Whether the data is too hard for them to consume or they just don't prioritize it, um, you know, it, it's often ignored. But understanding the the metrics of your marketing, like you can understand your PL is so critical because we have, and I touched on before, so much data available now that we never had. You know, yes, you put a TV ad out before and they they kind of told you what they thought people did based on a very small percentage that they actually measured, right? Like, whereas now we can look at what age group saw our ad, what age group interacted with our ad, where, you know, where people are located that follow our social profiles how that followership has grown, all this amazing data that can build confidence in our decision-making and, you know, forecast out, all right, if we change ad spend this way, we think we can achieve this or the model says that we can achieve that. Not knowing or, you know, or not spending time in that data is it's just a massive lost opportunity. And, and it's funny, it, it's a two-pronged loss. Obviously, you can be spending money and not maximizing that investment. So, you know, you can be losing out by overspending in underperforming ways, but you've got the lost opportunity of what you could be achieving if you were optimized, if you understood the data. And I, I sort of started consulting for a couple of larger e-com brands last year that worked with big agencies that were managing ads. And I was, I, I, and again, you come back to imposter syndrome, you know, I always think of my little agency and, you know, you question, do we do a good job of this? Do we do a good job of that? And when I saw the reports that they were getting from this massive agency, I was like, they're not telling you anything. They're actually just presenting data. You know, they're, they're like all data and statistics, you can make it sing whatever song you want it to. You know, we can manipulate data and statistics to support our, you know, our story we want to tell. And I'd read these reports and then I start asking questions. They did not like me much. I would start asking questions. I'd like to see the data this way, but I don't understand when you said that, you know, and I was sort of working with this owner sort of saying, you know, yes, they're, they're, they're telling you all this great stuff, but there's this whole underbelly of what they're not reporting to you on. And I think, you know, marketing professionals in corporate roles, business owners, that that numbers acumen, that that digital acumen like financial literacy is just going to be more and more critical as especially paid and, you know, uh, content strategies increase. Absolutely. And even the interplay between them, like just mm. how critical to understand your financials to the point where you then, and your marketing data to the point where you can then see how they interact. And again, you know, those broad levers that you need to pull to be able to make the numbers better. 
Yeah. Um, yeah, gosh, I'm still, I'm, I feel like I'm on a losing battle with trying to understand my own financial <laughs> literacy. <laughs> uh, but you not, work at it because you I know you have it. to. Yes. You know yeah. you have to, you know, so you do, e- even if it overwhelms us, we put the time in because we know it's critical. Very true. Very true. Um, final question. Uh, and we we're asking everyone this, of course, but you know, AI, chat GPT, friend, foe, or flash in the pan? Oh, I feel like I need a drum roll. I would go with friend. <laughs> Look, it, it's it, it's almost like swooping back to you know Facebook and monetize, monetization. You need to go with things. You can't you can't you know swim upstream against them. It's a friend. I don't I don't believe any of us are going to be out of a job anytime soon because of chat GPT, the, what it can help you with, with ideation, what it can help you with, with refining content, you know, take from it the shortcuts and small wins you can, but it's never going to replace the heart. And even what you just said then, the head and the heart that needs to go together into business, chat GPT will never be able to be you, but it should be able to save you a bit of time and, you know, enhance the best things about you. Yeah, totally agree. Definitely on the same track with that. It's interesting. Everybody we've asked that, I think it's it's almost like it's a trick question in a way because I think if anyone yeah. at this point said foe, uh, maybe we're all a bit worried that then it would like come after us in our sleep. But uh, <laughs> but I also I also love that nobody said like I don't think anyone has been naive enough to say oh it's a flash mm. in the pan. Everyone no. recognizes that this is an opportunity, and Absolutely. and they want to they want to take advantage of it, which is a good thing. Yeah, 100%. I think, um, you know, flash in the pan is, is when you think of the, the money and time that's gone to f- develop these tools that, you know, they've been in the works for a very, very long time. So flash in the pan would just be is super duper naive to think. AI may not be a flash in the pan, but neither is Marianne Ames and her agency Wise Up Marketing. In fact, it's her insight into what is just a flash in the pan and what must be paid attention to that has probably been a big part of Marianne's success through the years. She's not the first guest to have talked about a human-centred approach or how being open about our imperfections actually creates connection with our ideal audience. It's that beauty within the terror. It's being vulnerable, true moments of honesty, they create trust like nothing else. And so if you can really hold on to that value of honesty up high on that pedestal for yourself and your business, I can guarantee it will do wonders for your marketing and your world. Thanks for joining me on this journey. If you want to stay rebellious in how you practice marketing, how you show up in your workplace and how you live your life, please subscribe to the Content Rebels wherever you listen to your podcasts. This podcast was recorded on a Wabakul and Dark and Jund country. Produced by Pod and Pen Productions.